Today, there are two million descendants of French-Canadian immigrants living in New England. These are our stories. Welcome to the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. Venez tous jeunes filles et garçons, je vais vous raconter l'histoire de notre immigration ici au USA, de grands aventuriers de pays étrangers. This is the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. I am Jesse Martin. Now, this week's guest will be very familiar to the listeners of the podcast as Dr. Patrick Lacroix is joining us for his third full interview, though he's been on more than that. Not many will know Patrick from his amazing blog, Query the Past, which is keeping Melody very busy at the FCL News Desk, as there's a ton of amazing content on there. He has authored two books, John F. Kennedy and the Politics of Faith, and his most recent work, Tout nous serait possible, une histoire politique des Franco-Américains, 1974 Dr. Lacroix is also the director of the Acadian Archives at the University of Maine, Fort Kent. Patrick, welcome back to the French Canadian Legacy Podcast. Great to be back. Thank you so much. This is cool. So before we get talking about this new incredible book, which I'm definitely going to be excited to speak about, uh, there a couple of other things I want to touch upon real quick. That's cool. Um, the first, we did an entire episode on the Young Franco-Americans Summit. But for anybody who do not tune into the that episode, can you just give some initial thoughts, impressions of that event? Sure. This was a novel event, uh, as far as we can recollect, with our own young minds and memories. <laughs> so it was inspired partly by the annual Rassemblement, which is hosted by the uh, Franco-American programs in Orno in Maine. Uh, but we wanted to have something that was geared towards a younger audience, I guess, but also younger participants uh, who might have an interest in Franco-American culture, history, heritage, the French language itself, but who might struggle to get their voices heard at the Rassemblement. So this was meant to be a more welcoming event, um, a smaller event, but one that would be a little bit more welcoming. And, um, you know, we hear a lot that it's very intimidating at the Rassemblement to just walk up to somebody who's been in the field for 20, 30 years, in some cases longer, um, right. have a lot of experience and who might have a lot of knowledge to share. But that at the same time, you know, it's intimidating and it's very hard for younger people to kind of forge their own identity, um, especially if they haven't lived through the 50s and 60s and 70s and they don't have the same cultural references. So that was the rough purpose behind this event. Um, and it was a great success, thanks in great part to the Franco-American Center in Orono. Um, Susan Panette, um, Lisa Michaud did a great job of supporting us and especially uh, Daniel Moreau, who was our man on the ground and who really took care of all the logistical aspects. So big thanks and big kudos to all these people. Awesome, awesome event. Very glad it got off the ground. Something that had been talked about for a while, so to be able to pull it off is terrific. And like I said, we got an entire episode on that. If you're interested, definitely check that out. Uh, but I do need to talk about, obviously mentioned in your bio, you're the director of Cadian Archives at Maine Fort Kent. And now we've talked about the archives, but it has been, I guess, a couple of years now since we have done so. Uh, so a couple of things. First of all, how did you end up in Fort Kent and what are the Cadian Archives? Sure. In this role, I'm stepping into, or I have stepped into really big shoes. Uh, Lise Pelletier was in this role. I won't even even venture a guess as to how long she was here. Did an amazing job. Um, and this is her life's work. Um, and she'll, she'll still be involved with the Maine Acadian Heritage Council and just the cultural endeavors in general up here. But she decided to, to take a step back, as did 
Anne Chamberlain, who was our archivist previously. Um, so we had a bit of a, an interregnum here uh, this year, um, but it came about partly because of my work in French diasporas or French heritage diasporas. And while Nova Scotia had the immense pleasure and privilege of teaching Acadian history, so I didn't have that background that I could pull on. You know, a lot of little pieces had to fit together, including my getting a visa, which <laughs> in the course of a pandemic and a closed border um, was not easy, especially since I had to fit very specific employment categories. So that in itself was at least as big of a challenge as getting the actual position. Um, but regardless, uh, it, it all worked out. And it's really been a pleasure the last month and a half to be here, uh, partly because of the community has been so welcoming and there's still a lot of energy um, that I feel basically every day about the preservation of the French language. There's a lot of talk of creating a new French immersion program up here for uh, public school students. Part of it is just the proximity of New Brunswick and Quebec. Mm -hmm. Um, and having access to a lot of great cultural resources. But it's something special because this is a unique culture. You can't just, you know, turn to Quebec City and imagine that, you know, it's the same old story. Uh, the Acadian story here is it, it's rich, it's fascinating, it's unique. So the archives play a role in the preservation of that heritage, but also as an agent of diffusion, dissemination, of growth by holding events, uh, serving as a hub for the community. So we'll be host hosting uh, guest lectures in the spring on Acadian history were, this is the first I've spoken publicly about this, but we're trying to organize a local field trip for the community next summer, get a bunch of people on a bus and take them to various historical sites in uh, the St. John Valley. Very cool. We'll go to the Acadian village and hopefully meet partners and hear indigenous voices from the Canadian side. So we're working on that. We'll hopefully get all of our ducks in a row for that, but if not, there's still plenty of really exciting um, events programming coming up next year. That is awesome. I know Mike, Mike and I have talked about for a bit that at some point we got to get up there for sure. And if we had, we talked to Lisa on the program, she was awesome. We could that because yeah. she could have talked to us for 17 hours and it still would have been interesting. It was an awesome, awesome sure. episode. So I'm glad to see that you taking over that Acadian archives and that is still continuing to thrive. That's really exciting. And uh, one more before we get to the main book, I did want to talk about the John F. Kennedy, the politics of faith book, because it's definitely something that would be of interest to anybody interested in issues, you know, of Catholicism and politics. And so what is that book? Can you tell us what that's about? Sure. The book came out in January 2021. Uh, it's based on my PhD dissertation and not hopefully this won't seem too intimidating because dissertations have a reputation as being dry <laughs> and sure. formulaic and uh, not particularly lively. Um, <laughs> now I'll let the readers decide <laughs> whether you know, that's actually my book. But uh, the truth is, my I had a wonderful advisor who you know guided me through the process and who encouraged me to write to basically to a wider public while checking all the typical academic boxes and sure. doing. The research that's fitting of a, a dissertation. Um, and it tells a story of the major realignment in American politics and American religion that took place in the late 1950s, early 1960s, partly due to Kennedy himself. And there were broader cultural and social factors that played into it, factors abroad, including the Second Council of the Vatican. But this was a major moment in um, the alignment of politics and faith in the U.S., as I put it. And people realized that maybe Catholicism was not the giant political threat that had it had been 
deemed to be uh, up to that point. And it's sure. partly not because of the election result itself in 1960, but it's due to Kennedy's own example as a steward of the church state, the separation of church and state, and a guardian of uh, official state neutrality in all matters of faith. And in partnering with religious activists on the left-hand side, uh, we can argue that he helped to give birth to the religious left that was very brief in life, but that certainly left its stamp in civil rights, the anti-war movement. So Kennedy is really at the confluence of various social and cultural forces, to say nothing of politics. And that's what I explore in that book. But you're absolutely right. I think it would be quite relevant to people in the Northeast who do have Franco heritage or maybe gasp Irish heritage <laughs> um, and who whose families lived through this transition. Uh, maybe they themselves recalled the election of 1960 and Kennedy's time in office and just how much of a landmark moment that was in the history of this country that showed that this was not necessarily or inherently a Protestant nation. And it's all the more relevant now with a second Catholic president in office sure. who's facing many of the same challenges. No, that's awesome. I've I shared with you before, Meme Martineau, my grandmother, my dad's mom, uh, the only Democrat she ever voted for in her entire life was John F. Kennedy. So <laughs> absolutely. And I do think it's cool because you're right, the religious left story is not something we hear about all that often. So that's awesome. But here, the main reason we're here, the main events, Through nous serait possible une histoire politique de Franco-Américain, 1974-1945. First of all, did I even come close with the pronunciation? How'd I do? That was, that was amazing. Um, <laughs> I, I know you wish you could still be in Quebec City. Sure do. Um, but at least you're taking some of Quebec City back with you. That pronunciation was, was perfect. All right. As long as my parents won't be embarrassed. That's the main thing. <laughs> Very good. So, all right. Big picture then. Why write a book on early Franco-American politicians? Yeah, great question. So I call this my pandemic book. Maybe that's not great marketing, actually. Uh, <laughs> maybe I shouldn't say that. But I started this right before the, you know, the lockdown began in early 2020. Um, I was then living in, in Wolfville in Nova Scotia. And um I, I made the very deliberate decision of not getting an internet connection at home. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Uh, so just in case people didn't already know, I live in the dark ages electronically. Um, do you still have the flip phone? That's the I still have the flip phone. I do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's still, still going strong. Um, but that, that was so that I could write and do research and Um, I was able to, to write this fairly quickly. And most of my research and published work, original work, has come out in the form of peer-reviewed articles. And um, initially, this was what this was meant to be, just a kind of a 30-page academic mm -hmm. article that I could send off to a journal and you know, keep my fingers crossed, hopefully it would get published. But as I kept digging and digging, uh, just a historiography, so basically what other people have written about the topic, that was 30 pages. Sure. I was going to initially kind of draft a list of major figures in a very analytic style just to provide guidance to other researchers who wanted to advance the bounds of the field since very little has been written on the purely political side um, aside from a few major figures but even just a list of figures that I came across in that early phase of research that would have been like the sheer listing would have been 30 pages as well mm -hmm. so it just kept growing and growing and growing and I kept encountering these amazing stories of people taking part in the larger political arena, taking part in political rallies. Um, and it was all information that I was 
not necessarily in covering for the first time, like other people have come across some of these stories, uh, but they really haven't been published in any significant way, aside from a few major books that I do acknowledge um, that I was certainly inspired inspired by in the course of my research. But otherwise, there's no book that covers the region for this period. There's no other work that's really been focused on the political dimension exclusively, unless it's to mention one of three figures. Usually it's Aram Poitiers, who was the governor of Rhode Island for, I believe, seven terms. Oh, wow. um, yeah. And uh, Hugo Dubuc, who was a major Republican organizer in Fall River, as well as uh, Edmond Mallet, who was a major uh, senior civil servant in Washington. So those are the three figures that are usually acknowledged in passing. And there are all sorts of myths in the field because research has been fairly inconsistent and fairly limited. So that's where I really found my voice by finding how much of a, again, it's not really fair to other scholars, but how much of a void could be filled by some of this sure. research. No, that's awesome. Now, obviously the book is in French. I'm just curious why you choose to write a book about Franco-American politicians in French. Well, there's been a lot of hand-wringing lately about, <laughs> about representation of Franco-Americans, especially in Quebec. Sure. Um, and I've added my two cents, and I know that there's a lot of disagreement uh, over that. But more essentially, I think there are a lot of misinterpretations in Quebec about the Franco-American story. And part sure. of the issue is that um, when I was in school, I was barely exposed to it. Uh, from what I can, I can gather, the curriculum hasn't really changed. So people who left the province are usually left to American textbooks. And once they're out of the province, they're out of Quebec textbooks as well. So the- so we gotta, so you, you grew up in Quebec. So for those who don't know, when you say you weren't exposed to it, you weren't exposed to it while living in Quebec. Good point. That's right. Exactly. People who might be of the baby boom generation might still, in some cases, have that distant personal connection through cousins, through people who are no longer with us, uh, to the diaspora. But that's really the last generation that had any sustained contact on a wide level um, with people who left the province. So for younger generations, there's really little access to that story. And very few books get published that are at least accessible to wider public. Um, there are a lot of major um, collaborative works that have been written that are usually targeted to other scholars. Um, so I figured that I could write in a fairly accessible way and share at least one dimension of the Franco-American story. Obviously, it's a lot richer than, you know, these few political figures and these um, electoral contests, but it's a start. So hopefully I'll get more people interested north of the border to recognize the legitimacy and just how integral that story is also to Quebec's, Quebec's own history, uh, the story of the people who left and why they left, as well as the cultural pres preservation that still goes on today, um, to which this podcast is a, is a testament. So I think there's a lot to be done there and a lot more that can be done to spread the story in Quebec. And if I can use the French language to do so, all the better. No, that is awesome. I had the privilege of joining a high school, they don't call it a high school history class up in Drummondville. And when I started talking, you would think that it would be the equivalent of like a pilgrim walking in to one of the schools here in New England. They could not believe that a Franco-American was still something in existence. So it was, it was pretty wild. So thank you for that. That was very cool. Now, the period you studied, obviously, title of the book, 1874-1945. Why this period? French Canadians and Acadians as well are active politically on a local scale in places like upstate New York, Vermont, the Madawaska region, 
from which I'm reaching you today, um, sure. prior to the Civil War. So in the 1850s, already some people, because this is the early phase of the migration, people become naturalized quicker. quicker. Their children are born as American citizens. So the moment they're 21, they can vote as well. So that's easy enough. So that does happen again prior to the Civil War. But something significant happens, especially from the 1870s, onward. That's where we have the first breakthroughs in electoral politics. And we do have businessmen, and this is very gendered. So this is way before women can be involved in electoral politics, hence my gendered terms here. But uh, businessmen and professionals uh, first breakthrough in public service. Initially, oftentimes it's as constables because local police forces need some sort of connection to the French community. And then you have sheriffs and people moving up through the ranks. Um, as well as distinguished people who are recognized by their Anglo-Saxon compatriots and Irish as being trustworthy and, again, potential partners and connections to the French community. So that starts to begin in the, or that starts in the 1870s. We also have new forms of cultural organization occurring in the 1870s, new national parishes, schools, and those will lay the basis for collective action that can, that can then be carried into, again, elective politics. After the depression of the 1870s, a major depression that lasts the better part of five years, it's very clear that the French Canadian population is here to stay in the Northeast. And that becomes more and more apparent to French Canadians themselves who are kind of uncertain about their future. Uh, so that leads them to seek naturalization and to encourage, if they don't seek it for themselves, to encourage their children to take part in these community activities. And, and finally, we do have a new sense of collective potential of people being connected to one another in permanent communities. And that will become obvious in politics as it was in the form of cultural organization, hence the 1870s. And by going up to 1945, that enables me to cover the integration of Franco-Americans in the New Deal coalition. Gotcha. Um, we can talk a little bit more about what happens after 1945, but we do at least get to see the transformation of the French Canadian community in the 1920s and 1930s, and the fact that they become much more of a captive vote for the Democratic Party, just as they're navigating major challenges. Uh, one being the nativistic challenge of the 1920s, when they have to face all sorts of language laws, and of course, in some parts of New England, the Ku Klux Klan, as has been widely discussed in recent years, and um, the challenges of the Great Depression as well, which are national challenges, would we at least get to see how these Franco-American communities that are more engaged politically navigate the policy challenges of dealing with a severe economic crisis? Now, very, very cool. Now, obviously, the Franco-American story is huge geographically. There's tons of places you could have studied. I guess, why? Why the places? That, first of all, what did you choose? Where, what locations did you look at? And why did you pick those? It was important to me to cast as wide of a net as possible without turning this into an unpublishable 2000 page cinder block. Um, (laughs) So it had to be manageable and publishable. Uh, That was one of the major constraints. Um, And it's about as long as any monograph can be nowadays. So this is not comprehensive. I'll put that caveat right out there before people are at me. Um, (laughs) But, um, you know, there's a lot of talk, again, about making Franco-Americans more visible in the study of history generally, American history, Quebec history, and so forth. And that idea rings false to me if we only focus on a handful of cities. Of course. Or we imagine whatever happened in Lowell to be kind of the universal experience of Franco-Americans. So again, in the interest of making Franco-Americans more visible, better understood, uh, I had to cast that wide net. 
So it is a story about, <laughs> people will have heard this before. It is a story about Woonsocket and Fall River and Lowell and Manchester and Lewiston and, and all these other places. Nothing wrong uh, with that. No, that's right. Uh, which are important stories. And of course, sure. each of these cities had thousands, in some cases, tens of thousands of Franco-American residents. It's important to not only acknowledge them, but study them. At the same time, how often do we hear about Connecticut Franco-Americans? Not enough. Right. Or Franco-Americans in the New York capital region around Troy and Cohoes or Plattsburgh further north, uh, Vermont, upstate New York, or sorry, upstate New Hampshire, um, yep. even the Aroostook region up here. To me, it was really important to include all these geographical margins, which historically have also been kind of on the margins of our collective consciousness, sure. or our understanding of Franco-Americans. So I tried to reach out and take representative emblematic stories from these different places to talk about uh, Berlin and to talk about Barry, Vermont, and to talk about Plattsburgh, so that we at least form a broader regional view of not only political involvement, but cultural action in each of these different places, all of which had sizable Franco-American communities that in some cases are still thriving today and often, oftentimes thrive far more than they do in Manchester or other places. Sure. Um, you know, the French presence uh, in the Madawaska region, again, where I am, is still very visible and still very active. There's a lot of community action despite all sorts of challenges. And the same in upstate New Hampshire and a lot of other places. Um, so I think there's a lot more that could be done with regard to the longevity of these communities, but at least to get Franco-Americans themselves and outside observers, of which I suppose right. I am one, um, <laughs> more interested in these locations to form that broader view and hopefully spur greater research, greater interest in these places. This is just very tentative. But if we can get more people to look at what's happening in New York, for instance, which is always kind of closeted off from New England, then again, all the better. So I do this partly out of personal curiosity, partly to tell a fairly, as much as I could, comprehensive tale, but to get more pe more people interested in. Yeah, no, absolutely. I know. I mean, just even on the podcast, we have yet to have any episode whatsoever about Connecticut. And there's... We've talked about it briefly, uh, but there's definitely plenty to work with there that we have not touched upon yet. You're right, Ber Berlin up in New Hampshire, with tons of Franco influence there. I remember when I was in the state house, I ran into a uh, another representative who was from Berlin, and I first time I met him, I asked him where he was from. He introduced himself as being from South Quebec, so I thought that was <laughs> awesome. Yeah, seems about right. Yeah, but. Okay, so one thing you did touch upon, you mentioned quickly, was the whole, I guess, Democratic Party, Franco is being associated with the Democratic Party. Now, is that identity that, you know, that, uh, that party affiliation for the Franco population with the Democrat Party, was that something throughout this period? Did it depend on where we were in the country? How'd that work out? It's really interesting because we've inherited two different narratives, and I've seen this so again, this is not the most trustworthy source, but on social media, <laughs> giant asterisk, right? But I've seen a lot of people commenting saying, oh, Franco-Americans have traditionally been Republicans. Right. And I've seen other people saying with as much certainty, Franco-Americans have traditionally been Democrats. I've always heard the Republican story, to be honest with you. Yeah, uh, which is fascinating. And it kind of depends on where people were. So from the 1880s and 90s to the 1920s, there's a pretty clear regional cleavage in the region. And when I say the region, I mean 
New York State, and the six New England states. In the northern half, writ large, we do see a clear preference for the Democrats. And that's shaped by a number of issues, but mostly local businessmen and professionals and local Franco-American newspapers that shape the political consciousness of local communities, people who already have a built-in preference for the Democrats, who see the Democrats as being the, the party of the people, of the marginalized. And it's partly because in Northern New England, all state legislatures in all three states, especially if we look at Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine, dominated by the Republicans. And the Republicans are so secure in each of these states, typically, a little less on New Hampshire, but certainly in Vermont and Maine, that they don't need to reach out to any marginalized groups. So they don't have to reach out to the Irish or to French Canadians to basically enjoy political success. Almost by default, there's no outreach whatsoever. And Democrats have the greatest advantage to at least cultivate the support of French Canadians in hopes of eventually displacing Republicans. So there's a lot more outreach that goes with that up north. In the south, without saying that it's the complete reverse, partly because the Republicans are still very strong in Rhode Island um, and dominate the state legislature and dominate the governorship for decades. The reality is that there's a lot more community action by, again, Franco-American leaders trying to enroll or enlist Franco-American workers in the ranks of the Republican Party, because in those regions, especially the Republicans are seen as being the stewards of a strong industrial economy by supporting tariffs. So if you want the economy to do well, if you want the um, factories to be working at full capacity, you need tariffs to protect American industry. Um, So that's one of the pitches being made to Franco-Americans. And we we do also have kind of hot issues, hot challenges between French and Irish in New England much earlier than up north. So that also, because the Irish are predominantly democratic, that also creates a lot of resentment and a lot of conflict between Franco-Americans and the Democratic Party leadership in places like Fall River and just the southern part of the region generally. And we do find that in the 1890s, early 1900s, in a lot of cities along the Merrimack Valley, which is kind of between, sandwiched between these two regions, um, Franco-Americans are a bit of a swing vote. And in many cases, they just split their votes down the middle. So oh. if you look at a regional scale, these this is not a captive vote by any means that any party can take for granted. And that gives us a sense of how, I suppose, how thoughtful Franco-Americans are, um, that they're willing to weigh different issues, all depending on their own political circumstances. And a lot of different issues do go into it. So I mentioned tariffs. People in northern New England are a little bit more interested in free trade with Canada because it would help Canadian farmers, of which they were prior to immigration for the most part, um, so that political consciousness still stays with them. Licenses for liquor establishments plays into it. And the political ambitions of local leaders. Um, A lot of the, the figures who are involved as editors, as community organizer, organizers, leaders of the survivance movement generally. Many of them are the same that have political aspirations, political ambitions, and they'll often throw their lot with whatever party offers them you know, a spot on their ballot. So there are a lot of factors that play into it. And of course, a lot of the more tangible uh, issues, bread and butter issues, often are thrown out the window the moment that there is a Franco-American on the ballot. But that changes by the 1920s. Uh, by the 1920s, due to increasing, as I mentioned earlier, nativistic policies, including in southern New England, in Rhode Island, and parts of Connecticut and Massachusetts, due to the struggle of the industrial economy, especially 
textile factories and the increasing involvement of Franco-Americans in the labor movement, all that will bring more and more Franco-Americans from the southern part of the region into the ranks of the Democratic Party. And there's widespread, widespread um, enthusiasm about the candidacy of Al Smith, even though Smith is, of course, an Irishman. Um, <laughs> he is, uh, and even though he's allegedly unaware of what an encyclical is, a papal encyclical, um, at least he claims that, and that yeah. is supposed to sure. endear him to voters. The reality <laughs> is he's a Catholic, and at this point, uh, by 1928, Franco-Americans are fairly committed, almost as a block vote, to the Democratic Party. Uh, so that's a major transition, far more arguably than the Second World War, in the political evolution of the Franco-American community. By 1928, they're pretty much locked into the New Deal coalition, even before there is a New Deal, even before FDR comes along, even before the, uh, the Great Depression starts they're committed to the Democratic Party. And that's going to last for the better part of 40 years, and in some places, even longer. No, that's super interesting, because I've always been curious, because I know, I've been growing up, I've talked about a lot about, on this podcast, the, the battles between the Irish and the French, and seemingly just about everything here in Manchester, anyway, to even which baseball team you support was different in Manchester, depending on um, who you were, um, what your you know heritage was. But it struck me that a lot of these groups would find themselves in, in many of the same circumstances, like victims of these nativist policies and having to deal with the same economic issues. So it always, I was curious, I guess, if the divide that they had in other aspects of life also extended to politics where you would think they would be allies in so many, for so many reasons. Right. And a lot of these different neighborhoods and ethnic communities remain divided in this period. So it's not necessarily that there's significantly more social contact. There are very specific forums or arenas of social life where there are inter-ethnic encounters. There is a rising rate of intermarriage in the 1920s. So it does happen to a limited extent within the home, but within the halls of unions. Sure. And in politics, again, it's not to say that suddenly they're buddy buddy that you know everything is perfectly fine between French and Irish but they're able to strike this marriage of convenience politically because they both have a stake in rebuffing nativistic policies but also with regard to labor unions and defiant as you said um, defending common economic interests. No that's interesting now we talked about we alluded to before the end dates of this book 1945 what comes next? Well, 1945 was uh, a convenient date, um, as it often is For in sure. Franco-American history. And of course, social change and social evolution takes place always over a longer span of time. So, you know, if I had some hesitation about the book, it's really about putting that date on the cover because I'm afraid <laughs> that it might reinforce certain views about the Second World War, when in fact, you know, much of the change that did occur around that time was actually spread out over the course of decades. Oh, of course. But 1945, partly because by that point, the transition to the Democratic Party has occurred almost all across the region, uh, at least among workers or the working class. Um, among people who are more elite, we do see a class cleavage. So leaders of the Franco-American community still tend to lean Republican. So the transition that occurs in the 1920s is that we go from having a geographical split between Democrats and Republicans, one that's more class-based. And after 1945, that is pretty much ingrained um, in the fabric of Franco-American life. And that's going to last until the 
rough dissolution of the New Deal coalition towards the end of the 1960s, the Nixon era as well, when um, suburbanization having occurred, Franco-Americans tend to vote less on the basis of ethnic affiliation and politics becomes much less of a common collective activity that Franco-Americans engage in as a community, um, by which I mean up to that point, Franco-American newspapers had carried political ads. They had carried political editorials as well. They started in the 1880s. That's still happening in the 1960s. Oftentimes, the halls of a, for instance, a Société Saint-Jean-Baptiste will play host to a political rally, to whatever the highest bidder is. It might be you know, <laughs> Democrats one day, Republicans the other day, but sure. uh, they'll play host to, to uh, events prior to voting day. All that is lost over the course of suburbanization as that happens in the post-war era. And I wanted to kind of extend the time frame by offering an epilogue that takes us to the 1960s to show that, you know, it's not happening. 1945, suburbanization, end of national parishes, you know, that's the end of Franco-America. So I wanted to extend it a little bit and make it a little bit more complicated. But I think that they might scare some people off. But anyway, all that to say that after 1945, uh, the tone is set for about a generation. And who knows, maybe somebody will come along and write a book about <laughs> the next 80 years, 1945 to early 2000s, uh, to kind of better describe that. But it becomes a lot more difficult methodologically, because who's a Franco-American after the 1960s? The sure. challenge of self-identification, of looking at neighborhoods on census records, some of which are not you know, easily accessible, uh, that becomes a lot tougher. So um, who knows, maybe I'll jump into that challenge. Hopefully somebody else will take me on it. But either way, I think there's a lot more to uncover about the last 80 years of Franco-American history when it comes to politics. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the sequel for sure. Because I know, I know just for, for me, I was just thinking as you were talking, a lot of the um, my grandparents' generation, Franco-Americans, uh, tended to be um, Republican, I think a large part because of the church because of the issues on abortion and gay rights, especially those kind of things. Um, so they tended to identify themselves as Republican. I'm wondering just to myself if their narrative, because that generation was tended to be Republican, they've convinced themselves that the Franco-Americans have always been Republican. And that's kind of how the story got told, but no, super, super interesting for sure. Um, now, obviously you, you can't focus on everybody in this book. We got some main, we got some main actors in this book. So who are the main characters, the main figures? Who are they? Why did you choose them? You know, speaking of challenges, methodological <laughs> or otherwise. Was this the uh, biggest challenge in the book? Possibly. Uh, and partly because, you know, narratively, I really wanted to have like one person or one small clique of people who could be the narrative, form the narrative frame for the book. Uh, to who could be the main characters that take us through different eras. But of course, I cover um, 70 years of history, actually more with the epilogue, more with the introduction, different places. So that was largely impossible, unfortunately. But it does enable us to discover maybe a wider set of characters that will be fleshed out in other work. So I do talk about Poitiers and Zubuc and Mallet, (laughs) like all of my predecessors, um, in the field, uh, and fair enough, because these were, in fact, some of the most influential uh, figures politically uh, of the late 19th, early 20th century. I wanted to also explore uh, figures who take us to different regions. Um, Benjamin Lantier is one of the big forgotten figures uh, in Franco-American history, and I think that part of it was that he was expunged by some political opponents 
And some people were reluctant to tell his story because Benjamin Lantier formed a giant conglomerate of Franco-American newspapers in the early 1890s. He basically went from city to city. And we believe with, we're still looking for the, the smoking gun or the paper trail, but we believe that with funds from the Democratic Party, he was able to purchase all these Franco-American newspapers and to basically turn them into organs of the Democratic Party. And all in light of the upcoming elections in 1892, and hopes in hopes again that that would turn the tide in favor of the Democratic, uh, who was then Grover Cleveland, the Democratic presidential candidate, and other people down the ballot, um, and turn the tide and turn New England, thanks to the Franco-American vote, into a Democratic stronghold. That doesn't really happen, unfortunately, partly because of Franco-Americans' own limited numbers and limits to naturalization in that area. But as a result of his activities, once the elections are, are over, uh, the funding halts. And many of these newspapers are, as he finds out, unsustainable uh, and unsolvable or insolvent, I should say. Sure, sure, so sure. as a result, so many of these newspapers collapse in the 1890s. With them, they carry important tribunes for the uh, survivance movement. So these were not purely political organs or political publications, they were playing a key role in the su sustaining Franco-American culture. Uh, so he's blamed for that. Um, and he's seen as being having sold out survivance to the ideals of the Democratic Party for political political reasons. And he's rewarded by Cleveland. Cleveland ultimately wins, despite kind of poor results in New England, and tries to reward Benjamin Lantier, this very same figure, with a consular appointment in southern Quebec. So, which would be a big deal to have, you know, consuls in Quebec who are Franco-American, who could speak sure. the language and represent the U.S. in an official capacity in the land of their birth. But Congress, being somewhat suspicious of what happened during the election campaign um, and being dominated by Republicans, refuses to support that nomination. And after a year, he has to come back, basically, because he doesn't have congressional approval for his position. So Benjamin Lantin has a really interesting story. I provide him a, as an example because there are a lot of other figures uh, from throughout the region. Um, one I do want to mention really quickly is Harold Dubord from Waterville, Maine, who in the 1930s, in one of the most conservative states in the nation, uh, Maine, obviously it's changed since then, but then it's solidly Republican, almost as solidly Republican as Vermont. And uh, Dubord is a Democrat uh, from Waterville. And he's involved with local French newspaper there for a little bit and also identified with the Sylvie Vance movement. So sure. um, that's partly to show that uh, people don't have to relinquish their Franco-American identity to enjoy success in American politics, especially when many of their voters are French or Irish. Uh, but in the 1930s, he comes incredibly, incredibly close. It's a very tight election and there are suspicions of fraud, but very close to becoming a U.S. senator for the state of Maine, and he would have been the first, comes very close as well two years later to becoming the governor. So having failed in one bid, he tries his luck with a different office, doesn't do quite as well, although much better than a lot of prior Irish candidates for that position. So, you know, in terms of what ifs, uh, that's a big sure. one. And I do offer a lot of big what ifs, and it makes you wonder, you know, alternative scenarios, what could have gone differently and I think that can be a good thought experiment or thought exercise in trying to figure out why Franco-Americans sometimes did not achieve the success that, you know, they could have enjoyed. Right. And ultimately in Maine, um, no one would enjoy that success as a Franco-American until Paula Page 
until this century. And we can, you know, talk about, well, maybe we shouldn't talk about the politics of Paula Page. Uh, we'll spare well, controversy. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, but the fact that it has taken so long, a lot of jurisdictions at a time when, you know, there really aren't formal little candidates anymore, kind of says something about uh, the challenges that were up against Franco-Americans even back then. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, it's super, super interesting how there are so many variables between all these different time periods, regions, personalities even, um, but that there are definitely themes throughout, which is kind of cool. So I guess that's, I guess that's my final question as far as the book goes. Big picture, what were your biggest takeaways that you, when you sat back and looked back from writing the book? Right. I think it would be easy to form a sense that Franco-Americans were fairly insular, fairly isolated from American society up until, again, the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, that these little Canadas were fortresses. Sure. And it's true that you could, you know, for much of that period, go about your business in places like Manchester and only speak French. But that's not to say that there weren't connections with the wider world. Uh, around them, and that there weren't uh, meaningful, substantial interethnic relations, that they weren't exposed to the larger culture that was ambient, that was the mainstream American culture. So that narrative about insular Franco-Americans was meant to be a self-serving narrative built by clerical elites, traditional elites, to kind of maintain that momentum, that sense of identity within the community, and to try to close off other opportunities because it would benefit the movement of civil violence to have people clustered and living together according to traditional church ideals. Sure. Inherited mostly from Quebec. Uh, the story is more complicated in history. It's always more complicated. <laughs> it always is. Yeah. Somebody will come along <laughs> and say that the story is even more complicated than my book and they'll be right. <laughs> but all that to say that one of the big takeaways from my research is that there are a lot of points of contact and people cannot ignore, people in little Canada's, Franco-Americans cannot ignore what's happening around them in large rallies when somebody like, you know, Herbert Hoover visits their town. They're not, you know, they're not ignorant of that fact of uh, when other groups are holding political rallies. And increasingly, they identify their own interests with those of other groups across the region and across the country. So they start to form allegiances or form alliances, rather, and become um, much more involved in partisan politics. So that's one dimension. And hopefully more research will show just how exposed they were to productions in filmmaking and theater productions, um, encounters with other groups with regard to intermarriage, as I was alluding to earlier. So it's really the Franco-American story cannot, tell, cannot be told in a silo. So I think that one of the next frontiers in historical research on Franco-Americans is exploring those interconnections to the larger world, maybe making comparisons between Franco-Americans and Polish immigrants had a very similar experience, remarkably, to theirs in New England, um, and exploring Franco-Irish relations beyond religious controversies, right? right. Usually that's how it's told. Fighting over the church, of, yeah. um, Other points of contact. So um, who knows, maybe this will, this venture will inspire other people to explore those, those threads. There you go. Or again, the sequel that's coming. <laughs> this is a bit awesome, but I can't let you go without asking one of my favorite questions of the podcast. It is in a lot of ways self-serving, uh, but I've asked the mayor of Biddeford, Alan Casavan. I've asked James Mile, who definitely writes quite a bit about political things. 
It's something I've, I think we've talked about before, but I'm not sure we have on the show. And either way, it was definitely before you wrote this book, did this research. Um, in Manchester, there's a large Greek festival. And every year, politicians, from every politician, from city council all the way to United States Senator and Governor, they show up for this festival uh, because they want to try to win the Greek vote. So obviously, all the politicians here believe strongly that the Greek vote is a thing that there is a very concrete Greek vote that you can win or lose. Um, however, we really struggle to get any elected official out to Franco-American events because the idea that the French vote is not a thing. I guess, was it ever a thing? When did it stop being a thing? Why is it not a thing now? So this is a very tentative answer. Um, and I hope to not be quoted on this by your... <laughs> <laughs> your hopefully very generous audience. Uh, so a few things. So first, Greek immigration, more recent, generally sure. speaking. Uh, I'm brushing with very broad terms here, uh, very broad strokes, but much more recent. So they have a certain level of cohesion as a group that French Canadians have lost over time. One other big thing that comes to mind is that in New Hampshire, French Canadians are everywhere. And it's very hard to pin down as a distinct vote arguably, than one that's more, uh, I don't want to say clustered necessarily, but more geographically concentrated. And French Canadians have showed that, you know, they're very complex voters and maybe less monolithic. And it might be just harder for political, political operatives to discern a distinct French Canadian pattern. Now, I agree with you that there should be more public recognition, especially when French Canadians are holding events like Poutine Fest, uh, needless to say, uh, and I'll call out Governor Sununu right now, there next year. Uh, I'm hoping um, that he'll... Congressman Pappas did show up this time. I will say that. Give him credit for that. Kudos to him. That's amazing. But anyway, um, all that to say that I think that it might just be more difficult, not necessarily because of visibility, but more difficult to discern a certain pattern of uh, Franco-American political behavior. And I think that's true of all states now. The, the Franco-American community has just grown in more and more complex in the last 80 years, I'm not sure that their political behavior, and maybe this is the rationale of all these leaders I'm speculating here. Sure, sure. No, maybe they're we're all not. speculating. We're all guessing here. Yeah. Right. Maybe there's, you know, their political behavior is not distinguish uh, distinguishable from that of other generic Americans. I'm reluctant to, <laughs> I don't know what, yeah. you, what term to use, but other voters generally. So aside from those single events, I think it might just be harder to, to reach them on certain key issues. But I agree with you with that concern. I think it might still be a little bit easier in Maine for all sorts of other reasons, but I do share your, your kind of puzzlement, I suppose, with regard to New Hampshire specifically. Yeah, because I know, I mean, I think Glendy's awesome. This, this event, I'm talking about this Greek event in Manchester. I've worked at Quite a few times, my best my best friend is Greek, and but I just use that as an example because I mean we still see on people politicians coming through or doing like public access shows here in Manchester speaking in Spanish because they want to be able to connect with that vote, but you see that way more often than you do somebody who tries to overtly tries to pander to the French audience, and I I don't know when that when that was lost. I don't know where their politicians around, I don't know, the 1930s, faking a French accent in order to try to connect with the French vote. Like, I, I don't understand how that happened. And I will acknowledge really quickly, um, Steve Marchand. Steve um, Marchand is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Who has campaigned. And I think this was when he was running 
for the governorship, probably in the primaries. And he was very, um, you know, public in terms of his Franco-American identity using uh, La Fleur de Lis, kind of reaching out to voters who might still identify as Franco-American. So it would be wonderful to have him, uh, and I'm speaking for you here, or I'm speaking as an audience (laughs) member, but to have him on the podcast would be huge, uh, precisely to answer that question, I think, uh, which is a really important one, and maybe get his own story too. Yeah, no, it'd be interesting to talk. Former mayor of Portsmouth, right? uh, when he was, like you said, was campaigning for governor in the primary, I actually had a, he he reached out to me, we had a really cool, very long meeting at Dunks, because that's, of course, where I hold all my meetings, but Really, really, really interesting guy. No, that's awesome. But thank you, Patrick, again. This book is amazing. I'm thrilled to be able to promote it here. Where can people get it? Uh, The best way is to go to the website, Les Presses de l'Université Laval, and hopefully we can include a link in the episode description. Um, And you can also Google that. Um, I think it'll come up really quickly. Uh, The book has been published, so if you're looking for it in the search bar, it's among recent publications. Um, and you can order right there on the website. It's not on Amazon. I'm sure a lot of people will ask about that just because it might be easier to find. For better or worse, it, it's not on there. So you'll have to go through the publisher, which is actually arguably a better deal. If not, if you're struggling to, to find the book on the publisher's website, reach out to me personally. I will gladly <laughs> send you the link. It'll be my pleasure. Uh, I promise you only exert a little bit of peer pressure as far as the purchase is concerned. Um, but the Presidents of University Naval do have a really great um, selection. So chances are you'll be able to find something else you like as well as this book. Very, very cool. Again, we're talking to Patrick Lacroix, author of two new series possible, Une histoire politique des Franco-Americains, 1874 and 1945. Patrick, thank you so much for joining us again, sir. Thanks again. Have a good one. Now our fathers look at us and sigh with despair. To think that everything they love we simply do not share But the spirit never dies, our culture will survive Each of us must choose how much to keep alive Each of us must choose how much to keep alive Special thanks to Josie Vashon for providing the music. You can find more about her at josievashon.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Mike Campbell. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at fclpodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at fclpodcast for more information about the topics discussed. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this episode.